Okay, and if you want to join in on the other bits, <coughs> you can never lose and never lose. You know, say what you like. And it's on the wall. And it doesn't, those bits start, aren't important, you know. That's just the fill in. Yeah. Okay? Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. December 2020 marked the 40th anniversary of John Lennon's assassination in New York City. I vividly remember hearing about it on the television news that evening of December 8th. At that point in my life, I had stopped listening to the Beatles, but like everybody else, I felt that society had been robbed of a musical genius. But I also felt that a chunk of cultural history had also slipped through our fingers. Forty years later, the historian Greg Marcus has written a book about John Lennon's extraordinary experience in Canada, a series of events that took place in 1969. Marcus is professor in the Department of History and Politics at the University of New Brunswick in St. John, and he's the author of John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and The Year Canada Was Cool, published by Lorimer. We reached him at his home in Quispamsis, New Brunswick. Greg, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you, and it's an honor to be with you. Uh, Greg, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Please take me to May 25th, 1969. Where are we? We're at the Toronto International Airport, and John Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono, who are major pop star celebrities, have just flown in from the Bahamas with Yoko's daughter, Kyoko, who's about five years old. And they've come to Canada to stage a second bed-in for peace, and they ultimately move on to Montreal and stage their bed-in in the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. And the big event takes place in their bed at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. <laughs> That's right. They, they, they rented a suite uh, and a couple of rooms, two or three rooms. And, uh, you know, you can still stay in that suite now. They've got a plaque on the door and it's a tourist attraction in its own right. I, I normally end interviews with more personal questions, but, but this time I have to I have to ask it up front. Uh, your book is about the experience of John Lennon uh, in that tumultuous year of 1969, but it's a lot more than that. I will talk about it. But um, I know Greg Marcus as a guy who writes about cops and criminals. What got you focused on John Lennon in Canada? It was partly a personal interest in being a baby boomer, a younger baby boomer who grew up with the Beatles on the radio, too young to buy their records. And I was more into sort of the hard rock of the early 70s, like Led Zeppelin and so forth. But as I began to get more into popular music and buy, buy records, I realized that the Beatles were a big deal. Also, I'm an amateur musician, you know, so back in the day when we started our garage bands in high school, invariably you're going to play a few Beatles tunes and they're still useful at parties and, and campfires and things like that. In addition, as an academic, uh, I've been, I, it's true that I focus on legal history, criminal justice, but I have been doing some work on Canadian pop culture history, like music, film, and television. And I also teach a course in 1960s Canada. So a number of these strands came together. 
the final justification or you know origin story, if you will, behind the book is that a few years ago, as I finished a previous book, I realized that 2019 would be the 50th anniversary of these events. So I started looking at the events and I realized that no one had really put them all together as a as one story. And uh, that inspired me to try to do a book on it. Mm. Now, you say this is the second bed-in. The first one took place in the Netherlands. Yeah, Amsterdam, the Hilton Hotel in Amsterdam. And it was after the couple had gotten married, I think, in Gibraltar. They visited Paris. They went to Vienna, I believe, at some point. I forget the exact order. And they held the first bed-in for peace, which got a lot of media attention at the time. Uh, in, in Amsterdam. And uh, they were already involved in some activism, but this was their first major uh, sort of public uh, event where they were trying to promote world peace. But Greg, uh, I mean, if I was John Lennon, uh, I wouldn't have come to Toronto if I wanted to promote a movement like this. Why not in New York City? Why not in the States? Well, it was partly serendipity, and he couldn't get in the United States because in 1968, he had pled guilty to possession of cannabis resin. He and Yoko, uh, I think this is maybe before they were, yeah, before they were married, they were living together in a flat in London, um, and the flat was actually owned by Ringo Starr. One of the previous occupants had been Jimi Hendrix, and uh, the police raided the place. You might have read in some of the pop culture history at the time, the British police were going after celebrities, celebrities such as the Rolling Stones and uh, drug bust. And so they found some cannabis resin. They took them to court and Yoko was not a British citizen. And they told John that if he would plead guilty to the possession charge, they would not charge her. So rather than see her deported, he pled guilty, paid a small fine and went on his way. The trouble is, is that the United States usually will not let people enter with drug convictions. And so when he tried to enter in 69, uh, tried to tag along with Ringo Starr and his entourage as they crossed the Atlantic to go to New York. He was denied. So he loaded his entourage into a plane and flew to Nassau, hoping that he could sort of influence American media from there. Mm. So tell us about John Lennon in 1969. What's, what's happening in his life? It's pretty complicated. You can do your own research and then you try not to be influenced by many of the other biographers and writers, but there's a lot going on. He, the Beatles are kind of drifting apart. Uh, it's their final year as an operating group. But during that year, they do record, you know, their last two major albums, including Abbey Road, which is a classic. And, uh, you know, there are tensions within the group. Some people say those tensions are mainly because of Ono. Uh, but uh, in many interviews at, at the time, and particularly after that, John said he was unhappy with being in the Beatles. He felt trapped. He wanted to try something different. He felt he had outgrown the Beatles. At some point, he gets really over the top by saying that Yoko Ono is, is, is a bigger influence on his artistry than Paul McCartney, right? Um, but he's he, with Ono, he's been exploring the world of art and activism and the intellectual scene. He was already the more intellectual of the Beatles. He had written a few books and he was certainly the best known for having um, witty comments at press conferences and things like that. So gradually through exploring the work of art, he was drawn into what we would now call celebrity activism. But he was also benefiting, as I pointed out in the book, he was still benefiting financially from his songwriting credits with Paul McCartney and money coming in from the Beatles. Now, he's I mean, we, we, we forget this, but he's he's not even 29 years old. He's a young man. What are his politics? How would you define his politics in 1969? 
it's hard to pin them down. They almost change by the day, but he's certainly not conservative. He tends to change, and and sometimes he, he's a, he's an individualist. He will not. He's not a joiner, right? So later in the early seventies, he does take part in a few peace marches and things like that on the other side of the Atlantic. But he, he was too much of an individualist to satisfy the new left movement of the day. And there is a whole controversy about you know the lyrics for the song "Revolution," for example, that was. And that, it's hard to believe, but that was a major controversy with the new level politics of the, you know, the, the one line in a song, right? They were so influential of young people. And many people were excited that the Beatles were starting to get a bit more outspoken and things like the Vietnam War. But many were exasperated by the, the fact that they weren't going far enough or by this sort of uh, ambivalent message in revolution. So he did have a vision of a more humane society, and he acted on that. But it's difficult to tell, again, how much of that was genuine and well thought out. He did read uh, many of the current books of the time. Uh, he was a TV junkie, and he and Yoko Ono were were, were newspaper junkies, you know. And uh, so I think he was he became more radical in the early 70s, but it was sort of on a the separate plane was always that kind of more humanitarian individualistic thing. He, he often was exasperated with new left politics, right? As he said in Revolution, uh, we'd all love to see the plan. Uh, and I guess he had not seen the plan. Yeah, no. And, and again, and he, he was hot and cold. But when he it's interesting, in interviews after he came to Canada and was being further probed by reporters, why are you doing this? You know, is it genuine? How come you're doing this? Why should we take you seriously? He did. I forget the name of the uh, filmmaker. I, I mentioned him in the book. He was a British filmmaker who had... Uh, uh, done a film on uh, a semi-fictional, well, fictional version of what would happen if uh, Great Britain was attacked uh, in a nuclear war, and very controversial. Apparently, he sent a letter to John and Yoko ask, asking them to get involved on behalf of, quote, the movement, right? So so that's something that Lenin mentions at certain um, press conferences. But again, what I found very interesting when he came to Canada he didn't really connect with the organized peace movement or anti-war movement. Of course, that, by that time, the anti-war movement in Canada was almost exclusively directed against the Vietnam War, right? But Lenin had a broader view. And, and in his interviews, he, yeah, he would speak against the Vietnam War and other conflicts, but he also would speak about war in general, right? And so they might, had a much broader view and a, sort of a utopian view. So it's hard to pin him down, you know, in terms of he's definitely on the left of the spectrum, but it's inconsistent. And it gets it's kind of more of the counterculture approach, which is sort of non-organized, you know, uh, as opposed to the new left where we have to go to meetings and have, you know, pass resolutions <laughs> and issue pamphlets. Right. He, he just wasn't that sort of guy. John Lennon goes to a meeting, but it's a meeting that takes place in his bed. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, let's get back then to the uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. It's known, of course, it's become legendary because that's where Give Peace a Chance is recorded, I think, for the first time. Yep. Um, was this just a publicity stunt, Greg? Uh, I mean, you describe it in detail, and it's wonderful to read the politics and all this. For me, it was quite a revelation. Was it just a publicity stunt, or was it more than that? Well, it was It was exactly a publicity stunt, but, you know, Lennon and Yoko were making no bones about it. They, they, they realized that this was a publicity stunt, but they were trying to sell the message of peace. They knew that the media would jump on it, right? And he was he he was quite forthcoming on that, uh, and uh, so he uh, 
it's almost like having the bully pulpit that he felt like through the electronic and print media and doing countless rounds of interviews of radio stations, rock radio stations all around North America when he was there. And when he came back again in the December of 69, that he could reach young people in particular. But he felt that, you know, he felt this was going beyond the politicians. So it's very interesting. There were no, as I point out in the book, there were no representatives of any peace groups at all coming to the the bed in, and that it was a week long event. The only the one exception was Rabbi Feinberg from Toronto, and and uh, I believe that he was mainly brought in by the CBC. That was another revelation to me. I guess it was hiding there all along, but the I, the role of the CBC in engineering aspects of this bed in, and also uh, kind of uh, curating the memory of the bed in in many ways, right? So I mean, a lot of these characters who showed up uh, were were brought in by the CBC, right? Who paid for their trips. Uh, for a television show, one exception being uh, my favorite, perhaps 1960s character of all time, Timothy Leary, who came, you know, but he kind of invited himself, you know, on, on assignment for Playboy magazine, of all things. But I know, again, an American, I mean, to what degree is Canada involved in this? The CBC, yes. Uh, you mentioned that Robert Charlebois, the, the, the Quebec singer, uh, will, will be there, and he sings back up at some point. Is that Did I read that correctly? Yeah, he, 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 he didn't visit the bed-in, but uh, that actually, again, this was hiding in the media. It's been reported in the Quebec newspapers over the last few years. But uh, one of the revelations to me as a music buff was that the song, Give, you, Give Peace a Chance, which was written and recorded in the studio on just a basic four-track recorder by... Uh, Andre Perry, a local uh, recording guy and a jazz musician, he, as I detail in the book, and again, this has been reported in, in, in Montreal newspapers over the years, uh, he took that to his uh, studio in Brossard and, and he called in some of his buddies, including Charlebois. And I would love to know who the other unidentified Quebecois musicians are singing harmony. <laughs> and he brought the, he brought the uh, re-engineered track back to John Lennon and he played it and John Lennon said, let's go with that. So when you hear Give Peace a Chance and you don't hear it that much on AM radio now, uh, but when you do hear it, or if you go to YouTube or you have a record, that that somewhat semi-polished, they didn't want to have it too polished, that somewhat semi-polished uh, harmony is partly because of Charlebois and other Quebecois musicians at the time. Well, I was not aware of that angle, and I was delighted to read about it. Now, again, we're, we're, we're in late May 1969. There's an attempt to bring John Lennon to Ottawa. Yes. Uh, but But it doesn't really work, does it? Well, he, he gets to Ottawa, but it's not, he, he doesn't really get what he expects. So a uh, young uh, student leader at the time, Alan Roth. Future member of the Liberal cabinet under Mr. Chrétien. Yeah, yeah. And, and future uh, president, I think, of uh, University of Ottawa, where he was a student. Yes, yes. So he, he, he uh, on his own, uh, came down with a friend and he wanted to invite John Lennon to the University of Ottawa for a peace seminar conference. But this is all kind of made up. Uh, it, it did, as Mr. Rock has said in different interviews, it only existed in his mind. There was no infrastructure, no planning. So he came into the suite with his friend uh, and he talked to John and he was, you know, dressed in shirt and tie and that type of thing. And he talked to John's uh, PR, uh, Apple PR guy, Derek Taylor. And like, there wasn't a really explicit promise, but that was something that Lennon expressed some interest in as soon as he got to Canada. And so uh, the idea of getting up to Ottawa to meet Trudeau, Parliament was in session at the time, right? So doing a lot of business. So uh, they agreed to, uh, to as the bed-in ended, before they back, went back to Toronto and flew back to Britain, they did go up uh, to Ottawa and they attended the uh, this, this peace seminar in, in Tabaret Hall, the arts building at the University of Ottawa. And, and uh, you know, I, I toured that building uh, a number of years later. And to me, as an author working in the case, it was kind of really exciting to be in that space. 
And there's pictures you can find online. But at that so-called seminar, it was mainly an extended press conference where John and to a lesser extent, Yoko gave their views on peace. There are a few um, Canadians taking part in that, you know, and who uh, was a detail in the book. Uh, and uh, but it's kind of an interesting moment. He'll come back later. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that uh, later on. He goes back. Does he wind up in the in the U.S. after the uh, the bed in? No, He's, he goes back to England. Yeah, he doesn't get into the U.S. until the spring of seventy. He goes he goes back to England, and of course they're doing things like putting the final, finishing touches on uh, their forthcoming album. Uh, Abbey Road and uh, other, they have other adventures that summer and, uh, uh, and then, you know, and then the fall of 69 comes around. But before that, of course, when you talk about the summer of 69, of course, we talk about Woodstock. Exactly. Yeah. Woodstock that happened in August. Now, what's interesting to read in your book is that there's an impulse to do something like that in, uh, in Canada. And in fact, the Toronto Pop Festival. Yeah. Yeah. And they come back. So they come back to Toronto in, in uh, September. Yeah, it was the pop festival happened before. Then the rock and the same organizers, more or less, I think the same guys with some uh, money from the Eaton family, organized a rock and roll revival. And it's a near miss in terms of being a, a successful uh, festival. And according to I interviewed Johnny Brower, who was one of the organizers at the time, a young sort of hip entrepreneur from Toronto. Uh, and he's done other interviews as well, where he stresses that, you know, once it became known that John Lennon was going to not only show up at this rock and roll revival festival at Varsity Stadium, but play, well, this drove the ticket sales, uh, you know, into, in, into, the, uh, into the black, so to speak, right? And so it's significant for a number of reasons, and a number of biographers of Lennon and of the Beatles have stressed that this was another step towards John making his final break. Right. He and, he and he played, you know, it wasn't the great, the best music of all time. He played, although they had let, uh, Eric Clapton on the stage with them, which doesn't hurt anyone. But uh, they uh, they played in public. It's significant in terms of Beatles history because it's the first time John Lennon played in public since their last tour of 1966. And he was doing it without the Beatles. Right. How were Lennon and Ono greeted uh, back in Toronto? Uh, was was it was it all uh, roses? Well, they certainly they there was a celebrity effect uh, effect when they showed up, and what's interesting is you can see some of this on film, you know, on YouTube clips and things like that. They, which is sort of standard of the day, you know, the local motorcycle gang provided security, uh, but uh, Yoko Ono was a performance artist, and so the things she did on stage, and John certainly seemed to be willing for her to do that, were, were a bit strange, you know. Uh, and uh, again, but within the world of performance art, it was totally in keeping with what she had been doing for years and was perfectly accept acceptable in the artistic circles of New York or, or London or what have you. But it was a little strange to you know rock and roll fans. And so there was mixed views of Ono's performance on stage and I, I, I cite some of the some of the critics at the time and some of the uh, memories of people who attended that concert you know but you know with, with, as someone said at that time if you if you took John you had to take Yoko as well right they they were they were uh, a, a pair right so they wind up in Toronto for a few days in September and they leave again as you say they, 1969 is one heavy year for for John Lennon and they come back in December uh and there they will meet with some of the best-known Canadians. You say they meet with Marshall McLuhan, for one, in Toronto, uh, at the uh, at the the the, uh, the coach house. He was uh, he and his center were uh, were housed at the, on the campus of the University of Toronto. And then finally, he does go to um, to Ottawa and meets Pierre Trudeau. 
Yes, and that's so that creates like an iconic image of the time, right? Uh, John and Yoko meeting Pierre Trudeau. And again, it's an interesting moment in, in political history and in, in pop culture as well. And certainly both gained in a sense, uh, Trudeau being associated with youthful uh, um, ambassadors from the world of youth and pop music and uh, uh, John Lennon uh, being seen with a world leader, you know, who, who seemed to know about him and support him in, in a general sense. It seemed like the icons of pop culture uniting McLuhan and Trudeau and Lennon. I mean, it's remarkable. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And those, I mean, they think about, you know, in terms of Canadians who were internationally known in the late sixties, that was it. <laughs> that, those are the top two, right? Those are the definitely top two. Uh, so, so, uh, but it's, it, it is interesting though. And I, I didn't include this in the book, but years later there was an interview. It might've been after John was murdered uh, I didn't include it in the book because I had to cut a lot out of uh, uh, the final chapter just for word count, things like that. But here Trudeau has described uh, Yoko Ono as he uses a word like one of the most fascinating women I've ever met in my life. Right. So he seemed to know and he needs to seem to know about the Beatles. And as I point out in the book, so many middle aged politicians at the time, at least in public, would say, I don't know who anything about the Beatles I, I've never heard their music. You know, my daughter says they're very nice. You know, well, how could you not know <laughs> a Beatles song in 1969? To do in fairness, is 50 years old at that point. Yeah, that's right. But he seems to have read or was aware of John's best-selling books of humor, right? And there's one anecdote I always, I, I liked when I put in the book where, you know, whether or not Trudeau, like Lennon, was play-acting a bit or like promoting an image, certainly some of the scholarship on Trudeau mania would suggest that, you know, a lot of it was kind of constructed uh, because the Trudeau that Canada got after 1968 was not the Trudeau of Trudeau mania. But there's an anecdote in the book where Trudeau's attending a, a dance at Rudeau Hall, and it's like a big band, like a military band providing the music. It's a formal dance. And he tells a reporter, I wish Jefferson Airplane was playing here instead. Uh. <laughs> you know, I doubt that he had a collection of Jefferson Airplane albums. You'd like to think that he did. But could you imagine, you know, Lester Pearson or Richard Nixon or even Harold Wilson, you know, the labor prime minister in England at the time, you know, speaking in those terms? No. Well, he was hip. He was hip. Yeah. And now, he actually got John Lennon to wear a jacket and a tie. That's quite remarkable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, if that was Richie York uh, or one of his sort of friends and advisors telling him to spruce it up. But yeah, that was I mean, John, so. John had the, the beard and the John, you know, the John Lennon glasses, the long hair, but he did put on a, a suit and tie. And it's interesting because at at this time, I mean, they were wearing a lot of like unisex jumpsuits, and you know, these are great. Even when they, I think they showed up Par Parliament Hill, they walked in wearing these long capes and big hats like sort of Dumbledore and uh but yeah he did wear a tie and 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 uh dress shirt and a sports jacket and a number of people commented on that so I think he was trying to make the best possible impression I think he wasn't so much concerned about the cameras but about Trudeau you meant Dumbledore about uh Harry Potter <laughs> it works either um, way I, I as I read your book it seems as though uh, as the year 1969 comes to an end so they, they come back to Canada they meet Trudeau it's a it's another pop tour. Um, but there's a lot of planning for 1970. People had a lot of ambitions for for more John Lennon uh, in, in Canada in 1970, but it's uh, it's clear that obviously things fell apart. Um, what what do you think fell apart? Was it was it uh, the Canadian side? Was it the Beatles side? I, I also want to remind our listeners that, you know, the the uh, that terrible concert 
at Altamont had took place in early December 1969, and that seemed to close an era of mega concerts that had been 1969. What, what happens? Why do things fall apart after that December encounter? Well, that, to me, that was one of the more fascinating areas because I had never, I, you know, I heard about the uh, Strawberry Fields Festival, which was the pop concert that eventually took place uh, in uh, the summer of 1970 in Moss Part, Ontario, in, in, in lieu of the Peace Festival. But I didn't realize that John Lennon had been involved planning. And so it's almost like the fourth trip that never happened, right? And so uh, the, he was in, I think, although, you know, Beatles were not at uh, Woodstock, Although there's some evidence that they may have been Lennon may have been invited or whatever, he never got there. So Woodstock creates a buzz, and every, every promoter, every, every every you know filmmaker, people are trying to have their next Woodstock. Altamont happens, and it does put a a, a a shadow over pop festivals. And also, I think you know what happens in late '69, which is the end of the year, the end of the decade. It much like I point out in the book, the revelations of atrocities in Vietnam and things like that. It puts a very negative spin on how the '60s are ending, particularly for you know middle-aged people on the other side of the generation gap. So, but John John and Yoko still want are working with Johnny Brower and some other Toronto-based promoters trying to get this peace conference off, peace festival off the ground, but it's very fuzzy. You know, he's not much of a planner. And of course, the Beatles are falling apart. Uh, there's a number of things going on in early 70. They moved to uh, Denmark for a while. Uh, he's trying to launch his solo career with a single instant karma in February. Uh, in April, Paul McCartney gives an interview, which sort of people uh, interpret as that the Beatles are over. Uh, and then, of course, John, John and Yoko move on, they, they, but they fight it out in the pages of Rolling Stone, which I found fascinating that, you know, Toronto, again, Toronto was an important music capital in North America, but it's not New York or L.A. And Brower and some of these Canadian uh, promoters are going back and forth to L.A. They're trying to, you know, salvage it. They're going to meet with John. There's all sorts of interesting characters involved, and some of it's kind of far out. Uh, even by the standards of 1970, uh, but in the end, the peace festival kind of fizzles out. Uh, but it's fought, you know, the battle is fought out in the pages of Rolling Stone, which I thought, hey, this is this is an interesting Canadian connection here. Your book leaves me to think that uh, public opinions were quite divided about John Lennon. I mean, we 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 have this attitude now that he was always wildly popular as a as a musician, as a pop figure. But but I, I get the impression reading your book that there was quite a division a lot of people weren't quite so happy with john lennon yeah and and i think it's as i as i argue in the book it's largely a generation gap thing which side of the of the line do you fall on middle-aged and older canadians uh even some of them had kind of grown to like some of the beatles tunes and i'm sure some of them were wearing beetle boots and growing sideburns by the late 60s but uh, acceptance of decriminalization of of drugs which i talk about in the book uh, some of their artistic projects, like the uh, the book of erotic uh, drawings, which kind of pushed the envelope on on uh, on censorship and and that type of thing. And uh, so I think it was those things more than his anti-war, but just the fact that he was like the richest hippie in the world, there was certainly a backlash against him. And uh, the again, I don't I didn't see public opinion polls in Canada, but there were some in Britain as well, where it showed that although okay, some British people. Uh, pundits or writers called them, you know, the man of the year, the man of the decade. There were public opinion polls that showed even in Britain uh, there was a negative attitude and up towards Yoko Ono as well. And of course, some of that was based on racism at the time, unfortunately. Greg, there was also a reaction towards hippie culture. 
Yeah, that's a part of the broader thing. Yeah. I know we have many young people listening to this podcast, but let's say for the younger people who may who did not experience hippie, the hippie culture, what was hippie uh, culture? What, what was hippie politics? How can you how would you describe that or analyze it? There's different layers of it because the actual number of bona fide hippies is probably quite limited, but there are a lot of people, so-called weekend hippies and Clark Kent hippies and people who are influenced by the hippie look, the hippie attitude. But hippies were, they started to appear in the you know, media coverage around 67 associated in Canada, associated with places like Yorkville, Vancouver, Rochdale College, later U of T. But, you know, they grew their hair long. Uh, they dressed in used or hand-me-down clothing. They sort of uh, didn't pursue work. They engaged in recreational drug use. They dropped out. They were non-competitive. They, you know, one of the one of the accusations that they didn't bathe or wash because they wanted to go natural. And so, uh, John Lennon was, in a way, was you know, kind of like the world's richest hippie, you know. And and uh, this kind of it was a threat to the mainstream. And of course, police agencies often spoke out. Local, you know, politicians in places like Vancouver and Toronto, Montreal were worried that hippies were congregating, you know, in their towns and, th- and things like that. And I think the, the association of, of this youth culture with these these pop festivals or rock festivals as, as well. I mean, I was struck by the uh, the strong reaction in, say, Ontario against, uh, you know, having these pop festivals in rural areas and the battle that had to be fought there, which had actually, you know, it was only through the courts that the in the end, the uh, the organizers won the right to stage their uh, concert in uh, in Mossport, Ontario, and they and they you know they 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 tried in three different provinces you know without success, and uh, and there was a backlash against that, and the fear was like you know if we have a con- a concert here or a rock festival, this is after Woodstock and Altamont, we're going to have all these hippies invading our area, right? Now, of course, most communities, I'm sure there's a bit of that, but most communities would see this as a business opportunity, right? To have these large concerts as tourism, right? But at the time, it's a visceral thing, and you know, and I, again, the, the the what happens in Manitoba, I was surprised I didn't know about that. The backlash in Manitoba against John Lennon and Yoko Ono coming in as special a celebrity guest to celebrate the centennial of the founding of the province of Manitoba under the uh, NDP government of Ed Schreier. There's a backlash that, that develops there, and it's mainly based on the generation gap, right? And in the end, they, you know, for a number of reasons, they don't show up, but it's not really clear that they were uh, disinvited or the invitation just lapsed. This is when the, the baby boom generation hits the age of their mid, they're all in their mid 20s, they're they're articulate, they're, but they're numerous. More than that, they are numerous. Um, what do we know about what John Lennon thought about Canada? He had only been to Canada three times prior to May 69, and he came during the, the crazy time of Beatlemania, where he was you know, in and out of airports and shuttled into hotel rooms and into arenas and things like that. In fact, I think in one of the tours, he they took him to Maple Leaf Gardens in the back of a, a police paddy wagon. So they wouldn't be torn apart by fans. He was well read, but I think he, his his knowledge of Canada is somewhat superficial. Uh, he knew about Trudeau because Trudeau had been covered in the British press. He was a celebrity, and he was getting favorable press. And uh, it doesn't hurt when you're doing things like dating Barbara Streisand, you know, uh, and sitting at, sitting at dinner at the same table with Princess Margaret and so forth. But uh, I and also the other thing that's kind of you know I I, I feel bad that the, that that uh, Richie York passed away a few years ago because to me he's the single most fascinating person in the whole book. And I think people like Richie York, who was an expat Australian uh, journalist who was working as a, as a pop music writer in Toronto and kind of 
befriended John and, and worked for John. Uh, he probably conveyed a lot of his views of Canada to John and Yoko. He, so he was kind of like a go-between or a cultural uh, advisor for them. And of course, Johnny Brower as well. And even, you know, Ronnie Hawkins, who's a bit crazy, but, you know, he's an American originally, but John meets Ronnie as well. So I think, you know, he's somewhat superficial, but he picked up on a lot of sort of tropes about Canada at the time, at least the wishful thinking. It's a peacemaker society, peacemaker nation. It, it's, 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 uh, uh, it believes in uh, uh, multilateralism more than, uh, bi uh, you know, uh, unilateralism. Uh, John was uh, impressed with uh, Canada's attitude towards Cuba, towards communist China. Now, whether he knew about that before he came to Canada or someone filled him in, right? He mentioned these in press conferences, but I doubt he had read much about the history of Canada. He probably didn't know, know much about its subjugation of Indigenous peoples, for example. He, I don't, I don't, I think he, he was a bit, in, uh, intolerant with uh, uh, the separatists uh, who showed up uh, at the bed in. Uh, but I, I think if he understood more about the specific context of Quebec history and French-English relations in the 1960s, he probably would not have condoned the FBLQ by any stretch of the imagination, but he would have been maybe a bit more understanding of, of some of that mindset. Uh, so again, Knowledge was somewhat superficial, but he seemed to know a little bit about it, and it was very complimentary. And I think that fed a lot of, uh, at the time, a lot of, uh, you know, the pride of many uh, Canadians and reinforced certain uh, ideas younger Canadians had about their nation or its potential. Your book, Greg, is, is about, obviously, about Lenin and Ono, but you, you've packed it in with all sorts of discussions of various aspects of pop culture at the time. I mean, in in a few words, in a few sentences, how would you summarize pop culture? When we say pop culture in 1969, what does that mean? It's music for the most part. That was my main entree, but it's also it's also advertising. It's also fashion. It's also television. It's movies, right? So there's a whole bunch of things there. And of course, there, it, it, there are two things going on with pop, pop culture in Canada, which I try to identify. One is the international influence of how, you know, for young Canadians, Woodstock was almost like their thing. Uh, the, the shootings of the students at Kent State in May uh, 1970 could have happened in Canada. You know, the reaction was so visceral. Um, but on the other hand, there's also Canadian-specific things going on, Canadian bands, re re Canadian recording studios, Canadian pop concerts. And so pop culture, uh, it, it was a very vibrant time. And, and again, there's, you know, many Canadian writers and musicians and recording artists and promoters were sort of gaining confidence at, time and, at that time. And it's going to become a bigger thing in the 70s, obviously, right? But the whole idea of promoting Canadian, uh, you know, whether it's music in Canada or music about Canada, because there's a debate about that. It's an awakening of pop culture. Yeah, I get that impression reading your book. It's like we're at a new dawn. There's a new dawn in Canada at this period. The dawn that gave us Trudeau mania the year before. But you get the sense that there's something exciting in the air. And that makes that period very different than periods before it or even after it. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, we know that historians have revised some of the, you know, uh, views of the 1950s and that type of thing. But I just find it, it is a very vibrant time for Canada. And, you know, you know, you can say almost like the 60s hits Canada in the late 60s. Now, let me finish with uh, the classic Champlain Society question uh, about your sources. Uh, how, how difficult was it for you to document this story? Did you use new sources to, to, uh, to help you write your book? Well, I, it was hard to find new news sources, but I brought a lot of things together in more detail on sources that had, hadn't been used, you know, 
by other writers when they're because often it was just newspaper stories and parts of chapters on John Lennon and things like that. So I did a lot. I went through a lot of media. I tried to find newspapers from different regions of Canada, international newspapers. Uh, I scoured the music press. So I don't think anyone had at that level gone through like Rolling Stone, for example. Uh, and RPM. And then I did interviews of Alan Rock. Of course, he had been interviewed before. Uh, I interviewed Johnny Brower, who's given many, many interviews on this, uh, who was a young promoter, he promoter behind the Rock and Roll Revival, as well as, you know, enticing John back to Canada in December 69 with the promise of a peace festival. I tried to reach, I, I tried to contact Yoko Ono. I couldn't get through. <laughs> I would have loved to have talked to Yoko Ono. That would be an historian's dream. Uh, but uh, and then newspapers. I ended up with something like five thousand scans of, of uh, individual documents. Uh, I read all the Beatles biographies and the John Lennon biographies. And I also an interesting source I found was the uh, in-camera testimony of John Lennon to the Ladain Commission on the Non-Medical Use of Drugs, which uh, yeah, which has which was released by Freedom of Information a number of years ago. And you find it online. And again, he gives his views on cannabis. LSD and other illicit drugs. And again, there's nothing like his ideas. There's nothing really new there, but just to hear, you know, to read several pages of John Lennon's views uh, on, on, on drugs in society, I found fascinating because he was such an influencer of the, at the time. And as a reader, Greg, I have to say, reading about Gerald Ladane in, in a book about Yoko Ono and John Lennon in 1969 was surprising. It was delightfully surprising. It showed you really did your work. Thanks. Thank you very much, Greg, for, uh, for sharing your thoughts uh, on your book with me today. Well, thanks for having me. That was Greg Marcus, professor in the Department of History and Politics at the University of New Brunswick at St. John, and the author of John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and The Year Canada Was Cool published by Lorimer. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thank you also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutin. This interview was recorded in the middle of the pandemic on January 15th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.